You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Incisionless brain surgery, it sounds too good to be true. What is this technique and is it appropriate for our patients? With me today to discuss incisionless brain surgery is Dr. Jason Newman, Assistant Professor of Otorhinolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Newman, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. What is this procedure called incisionless brain surgery? Can you tell us a little about it? Of course. Well, what this is, is we are actually going entirely through the nose to do surgery on certain portions of the brain and high up in the sinuses. So it kind of spares any incision through the skull or through the skin. Everything's done through the nose. Exactly. So we're taking advantage of the fact that the nose and the sinuses, which are inside and above the nose, are in direct apposition to the structures above them, which is the brain and the dura and some of the other areas like the pituitary gland and the optic nerves. And so we're able to extend our surgery through the nose and through the sinuses to get to these areas without having to make any incisions elsewhere. Hmm, that's fascinating. And so I imagine that this is appropriate only for certain types of brain tumors or brain situations. Absolutely. And what is interesting is that this is a field that is truly in an incredibly fast rate of evolution right now. The entire field of cranial base surgery, mm-hmm. it's only been in existence as far as the publications have gone for about 50 years. So really some of the founding fathers of this field are still with us and still contributing to the field. But even in the 50 years, there's been an incredible change in the technology. When this field was originally begun, most of the surgeries that were done were done with an incision in the scalp or moving a portion of the cranial plate, the skull itself, and then making incisions in the front of the face and Mm -hmm. kind of removing tumors by joining those two areas. That involved retracting the brain quite a bit so that you could get that out of the way while you're doing the surgery above and making a lot of cosmetically unappealing incisions into the front of the face to get to the surgery from the front. Over time, a lot of technology has changed. We've started to use endoscopes, which have become routine for a lot of surgeries, including abdominal surgery and sinus surgery. And uh, it began occurring to us that it seemed reasonable to start using this entire endoscopic approach to both visualize and resect tumors in this area. So if you look at how it's evolved, initially we were using the endoscopes just to get a better view from the front of the face into the tumors. But slowly over time, as more people have adopted this technology, we've actually started to do the entire surgery endonasally, meaning through the nose. Besides just the scopes, I imagine there's been a great development of the surgical tools and equipment that you need to use. Absolutely. In fact, without some of the innovations in the equipment and in the tools, this would not be possible. And if you look at some of the things that still remain as the obstacles, it is often the technology. So, for example, one of the things that we are routinely doing now is something called intraoperative navigation. What we actually do is Prior to the surgery and sometimes even during the surgery, the patient's anatomy is being registered on a CAT scanner or sometimes on an MRI. So our instruments actually are being navigated into the field while we're watching them on a three-dimensional CAT scan or MRI. So we can actually literally see not only where we are on a screen that comes from the endoscope, but we're also seeing where we are in three dimensions relative to the patient's anatomy, and of course, relative to things like the eye and the big arteries and veins that come in there, like the carotid. 
So I imagine that certainly allows for more precise resections. And do we see faster recovery, less collateral damage to the brain with these techniques? Yes. If you take some of the simplest surgeries that we do with this, the recovery period is incredibly fast. Some of the surgeries that are on the smaller end, we're sending patients home sometimes the very next day. Hmm. Whereas even just making an incision to do a craniotomy, you're, you know, you're generally leaving patients not only staying for a couple of days, but staying in the ICU for a few days before even considering going home. So we're really changing the recovery on these patients significantly. And then, of course, there's the psychological aspect of recovery as well. Waking up with literally no incisions, there's a much more rapid return to normal activity once you're out of the hospital. Well, that must be magnificent for these patients. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing that is the most difficult right now is that we know that we can't use this on everyone. We still have limitations to where we can use it. So a lot of patients are coming in hoping to undergo these surgeries. And because of technical specifics, they're not always amenable to this surgery. But we're constantly expanding the indications for it. What are some of these impediments or hurdles that make certain patients not candidates? Is it not enough equipment or something anatomic with their tumor? What kind of things cause patients not to be candidates? Sure. Well, that's a good question. And again, that is a constantly evolving question because it's changing all the time. So one of the things that was initially an obstacle in the surgery was that once you're through the bone of the sinuses and into the space above there, the intracranial space, the Anatomy in this region sometimes can get somewhat difficult to navigate because of the optic nerves and the carotid arteries that are in this region. So depending on where the tumor is relative to those structures, we can't always approach it through the nose. So for example, if a tumor seems to be going more lateral than the medial wall of the orbit, so in other words, if it's kind of starting to wrap lateral to the orbit, Mm -hmm. we can't actually get around the bony component of the orbit very far. So that becomes a limitation. So The tumor doesn't necessarily have to be that big to cross that barrier, but because of the nature of the scopes and our instruments, even though we can see around corners, we can't comfortably operate so far around a corner that we are at risk of obtaining positive margins or of not being able to control bleeding in these regions. So that's an obstacle. What we can see and where we can go to is one obstacle. But another important obstacle is reconstructing this area. So as you can imagine, the brain and the cerebrospinal fluid spaces are sterile, and the nose, of course, is very far from sterile. So when we are done with these surgeries, one of the critical points is making sure that you recreate the division between the intracranial space and the intranasal space. And that is an obstacle when you are removing large tumors because you're creating a very large defect in a region where you're trying to get to this defect through two nostrils. Mm. So you can imagine you can't take a piece of bone, you know, measuring seven by three centimeters and put it into this region because you physically can't get it in there. And on top of that, a lot of the structures that you're trying to get back into the intracranial space are very delicate. So you can't kind of push very hard on them and, you know, lay down a lot of foundation. So That is an obstacle that we are still addressing, and we have come up with a lot of techniques to improve it, including a lot of technological advances. We're using essentially uh, tissue sealants that Mm -hmm. are often water-based or glues that we take fat and fascia from the patient's thigh, from the fascia a lot of often, put it up there, and then essentially glue it into place in order to reduce the rate of leaks. You can take small bone grafts and do that. And then one of the newer things that we're doing is we're actually taking 
mucosa from the inside the nose, meaning the mucous membranes from the inside of the nose, and creating pedicled flaps, meaning flaps of tissue that are still attached to their blood supply, and rotating it up into this region. The advantage of doing that is that you're bringing healthy blood-supplied tissue to this area as opposed just to fascia or fat, which is devascularized by the time you're getting it up there. Oh, that's fascinating. Almost like a, you would do a skin graft somewhere else, bringing healthy mucosal tissue there. Exactly. Dr. Newman, it strikes me as you're describing all this that this might be an area where robotic surgery might help since the structures are so close and intimately related. Has that been applied to this technique? It's interesting that you ask that because that is actually what we believe is the next frontier for this surgery. The field of robotics is really in its infancy in this part of the body. Mm-hmm. At the University of Pennsylvania, some of the physicians in our department are the pioneers in this field and, in fact, were the first people to ever perform robotic surgery in the throat and in the voice box. We are now turning the tables on this and trying to apply it instead of down into the throat, up into the sinus and skull base region. It's incredibly fun and exciting to be involved in this new field because we are literally the first people in the world to be doing this. I think the applications for it are going to prove pretty outstanding, but this also still falls into the category where the technical component is probably the biggest part that needs to be addressed at this point. That's kind of the rate-limiting step development of the computer programs and all. There's a few parts to it. When we look at what needs to be done for this surgery, the instrumentation right now for some of the robotics is meant for abdominal surgery. Most people have probably heard of some type of prostate surgery that's being done with robotics. And the instruments that we need up in the skull base are just a lot different, a lot smaller, and we're often working in a lot deeper of a hole that's restricted by bone as opposed to in the belly and in the pelvis. There's not a lot of bony anatomy that's interfering with what you're doing. So, for example, a drill has not yet been created, which is a you know, relatively frequently used instrument in the skull base because we're dealing with a lot of bone. In robotics, there's literally not a drill. But the three-dimensional component is really the key to why we think robotics is going to be helpful. Right now with the endoscopes, we are operating on a two-dimensional plane. Our visibility is excellent, but it's still two-dimensional. So as the structures start becoming much closer to each other and the need for three dimension becomes much more critical, we're finding that the robotic component is really going to help. And I know it's a rapidly developing field, only 50 years old, the whole field of cranial-based surgery. Do we have any information on relative prognosis with the incisionless surgery versus the more traditional surgeries? That's one of the biggest questions that, of course, comes up, not only in our patient care, but also in our scientific meetings. Because, of course, we don't want to be embracing a technology where we feel like we're taking a step backwards with regard to curing cancer. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, as important as it is for us to have incisionless surgery and to avoid scars and to avoid a lot of the other things that we associate with big surgeries, we don't want to compromise on cure rates for cancer. So the data at this point appears to be relatively good with regard to demonstrating that the cure rate is equal and possibly higher with this type of surgery. And additionally, it is showing undoubtedly that hospital stays are shorter, quality of life is improved, and overall rate of complications in general is lower. We're really happy to see that that component is definitively improved. The long-term survival is at this point a little bit difficult because you really need years of experience to determine how well someone does, you know, for 10-year survival, for example. Right, And we're not at 10 years for a lot of these technologies. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, but that certainly sounds very promising, and certainly so many of the advantages are almost self-evident with, with going through the nose and not doing an incision through the skull externally. In terms of some of the computer and robotic surgery in this field, how widely available is the more basic endoscopic techniques? Well, the endoscopic techniques are potentially available anywhere. The instruments and the equipment are relatively universal. However, the number of people who are doing this is certainly not very high. When we go to our national conferences to discuss this technology, there is a very high interest in this type of technology, and people are very interested in learning about doing it. But I would probably say the number of places that are doing it is somewhat limited. If I had to guess, I'm thinking probably under 50 centers in the United States. So I think once you start looking at doing the endoscopic component, I think a lot of people are doing it. But since luckily the number of patients who have these types of cancers is somewhat limited, the need for it is not as great as, for example, for the prostate surgery. So if we do have a patient who has a skull-based tumor, we should look for a center of excellence such as the University of Pennsylvania if we want to consider this type of technique. Absolutely. And I think that brings up another point which I think is critical. There is no technology that replaces the expertise of a team who's making decisions about your medical care. And one of the things that can often occur is that a lot of uh, centers will potentially have one incredibly good technology, and patients are sometimes drawn to that. But one of the things you want to look for when you're looking to treat cancers, and particularly a cancer that's relatively rare, is a center that has approaches that include multiple options for the patient. So, for example, if a patient is, uh, comes in with a skull-based tumor that we feel is better treated with other technologies, such as gamma knife or uh, other stereotactic radiosurgery, we have that available to us. We have experts in the surgical component of treating these tumors. We have experts in the radiation oncology component, and relatively soon we're going to have the proton beam accelerator, which is going to even give us another tool to help fight tumors in this region. You know, I certainly think that anyone who has a tumor like this or who has a patient with a tumor like this, it behooves them to make sure that they go to a center where they know that the care they're getting is based on a combination of teams that can really manage this in many of the different ways that are required. Dr. Newman, thank you so much for being our guest this week, and thank you for taking us through what sounds like a very exciting, rapidly evolving field of incisionless brain surgery. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.